Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, today we're talking about communication. And those who know anything about what I say, I believe that conversations are where everything happens inside of business. Conversations around performance, around feedback, around change, around innovation, around it all happens ultimately in one form or another in a conversation. So today we want to talk about communication particularly communication around inspiring, motivating, persuading, transforming, sparking innovation, and also developing and nurturing a team. And we're going to focus specifically around how you use your communication to be most effective in driving that change and transformation, something that every leader should be thinking about, what's the next change and how am I getting that to my group? So my guest today is Jacqueline Farrington. She has over 20 years experience as a change maker, empowering leaders to spark innovation and transformation through their communications, exactly what we need. She's known for her very direct and yet supportive science-based work. She does a lot of work with senior leaders, and she brings her background in performing arts, vocal pedagogy, communication, psychology, and executive coach, all to help her clients deal with some very new challenging topics, things like perhaps the great resignation, just to name a few, just to name one. Our clients have included a bunch of multinationals, but in particular, Amazon and Microsoft, at Microsoft, as well as some startups and nonprofits. And also important for today, she has served as TEDx Seattle's senior speaker coach. I need to hire you, Jacqueline, for a separate reason there. <laughs> Um, so teaches at Yale and she's also taught at London Business School at Rutgers and at some other places. The book we're talking about today, The Non-Obvious Guide to Better Presentations, How to Present Like a Pro, Virtually or in Person. And yes, we're going to talk about virtual at the very end of the show. So Jacqueline, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Wanda. Thanks for having a conversation with, with me as well. Yes, yes, I am looking forward to that one. All right, start. I'm going to ask the opening question in a slightly different way, but you specialize in communications. So more about how do you master the habits that are going to nurture transformation and change. So when you think about all the leaders and speakers that you've worked with, what are most doing or not doing that is undermining their ability to create change? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. ProSci has a, a study, came out a number of years ago, where they found that when leaders were looking back on change that they delivered either successfully or unsuccessfully, sadly, more often the case, unsuccessfully, they identified that they wish they would have communicated more and more effectively. And, and I think the key word there is effectively because, and I would change that slightly to more skillfully. I think that leaders will spend a huge amount of time thinking about the message, the, the content of what they want to deliver and less about how they deliver it. And, 
how you say what you say matters, but they won't put the the legwork in to figure that out and figure out what is the the best way for for me to deliver that. So that's one. I, I think the other one too is misalignment with the change, walking the talk. I I worked a a number of years ago at a global banking institution, and they were going through something like a 30% cost reduction. And I was working with a managing director uh, who helping his team go through this change and thinking about reductions. And on his own volition, not through my coaching, maybe through my coaching, maybe through conversations, but but his own choice, he said, you know, I'm asking my team members to fly coach now and not fly business to save costs. And so I'm going to do the same. I'm not going to fly in, in business. And yet he had a, a colleague there who didn't make that same decision and who put himself ab- above the team, asked the team to make changes while he didn't make those changes himself. And so, of course, it, it created distrust and the he didn't successfully lead his team through that change and, in fact, was, was transitioned out of the organization. So those are two of the biggest mistakes I see. I hear the comment about leaders that we admire versus the ones that we don't admire is the walk the talk is a big one all the time. Though it's often hard to know. Can like walk the talk is I said judgment I have that what you say and what you do are the same thing. But so many other particulars, like even in that example, I can imagine a leader just gets upgraded because they fly more than their team does and suddenly they end up in business and the judgment about them is terrible and you know, et cetera. So Yeah. But in that case then it's the transparency, isn't it? That's right. Right. And so sharing with, with the team, hey, this is what's going on with me. This is this is what's happening in, in my world. So certainly being upgraded is one minor example, but still sharing the vulnerability of this is what's going on in my world around this change as well. And that transparency is crucial. Transparency, 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 transparency. It needs to be our watchword for the future decades. All right, let's go back. Leaders who have led a change effort, successfully or not, wish that they had communicated more and more effectively, translate more skillfully. So your hypothesis is they're not thinking about the way they deliver the message. So what are they missing in that delivery, in your experience? Well, the the first thing is not putting the audience, the stakeholders, front and center. People don't change for our reasons. They change for their reasons. Right. Another example, several years ago, I was brought in to work with a leader who was tasked to deliver very complex change in his organization and a a huge volume of change, a lot of change. And he was clear on the vision. He was clear on where they were going. He was excited by it. And in fact, a lot of people were excited by it in the organization. But when he sat down to consider his stakeholders, he, his, his initial anticipation of how that change would, would land was, oh, they're going to love it. Everybody, everybody's going to love it. 
and didn't really take the time to put in the footwork to understand that not everyone will love it. Or some people will initially love it. And then when it comes to the hard slog of delivering the change, they're not going to love it so much. Yeah. And so when I came in, we, we started sitting down and, and really doing some focused listening sessions, um, putting the audience front and center, understanding what their values were, what their reasons for buying into the change were, or what their reasons were for not buying into the change. And sometimes people have very legitimate reasons for that. And they, in fact, may have ideas for how to better deliver the change. And, and so I think that's that's something that leaders need to always start with first is putting that audience front and center. Okay. So not what I think the audience should be thinking, but what the audience is actually thinking, their hopes, their dreams, their concerns, their fears, their willingness, even if you will, in some ways. All right. Now you talked about listening. So you start like, typically this goes by having a facilitator because people are a little intimidated to tell you as the leader, what they think about what you're doing, but you have some listening to where we're asking people about the change, about what they're needed. Are there other tools or, t or tactics for making sure you understand where your audience is coming from? Yes. Listening doesn't always have to be a listening tour. Okay. And in fact, leaders are going to get some of their best information through third parties, mm -hmm. through other leaders, through the change champions, the people who really do buy into the change, who are out there in the organization talking to others, but, but also creating communication channels where they can listen without even having an in-person conversation. So uh, it, it might be pop-up surveys where they're just asking once a week, what's going on with you? How are you managing the change? What are your ideas for how we need to course correct? Um, finding ways then to have those more impromptu one-on-one -on -one conversations. So again, it's that, that leader who, do they walk the talk? Do they lock themselves in their office? Or are they finding ways to get out there and, and not just walk the floor, but have, have a beer with people after work? or uh, standing in the, the kitchen, making a coffee, having a conversation with, with someone. So um, they're certainly thinking about all your channels for listening. Listening, for hearing, for making yourself available, for being approachable, for um, having people tell you what they're thinking, what they're concerned about, and just taking that on board, not going into defense mode, but taking it on board and hearing it. Okay. Yeah, if I can add to that too, Wanda, that sometimes what leaders will do when they're seeking feedback, whether it's feedback on, on a change or feedback on themselves, is that they'll ask a very general question. Mm -hmm. How are you doing? Or what can we do better? Or what can I do better as a leader? And rarely does that work. That In fact, that's kind of creates fear on the other side because the other person might think, oh my God, what's the right answer? What do I say here? Whereas if a leader can ask a very specific question, hey, I'm working on being a better communicator of change. And one of the things I was thinking I should do is spend some time each week with, with each team. What are your thoughts on that? How could I do that most effectively? Or 
there's this one aspect of the change that that we're trying to deliver. We're, we're creating leadership competencies that we want everyone to get on board with and, and use as they're thinking about career planning in, in the organization. And one of the things we've noticed is that people say they like this particular competency, but then it doesn't really come up in those performance reviews or we don't see people acting on that. What's one thing we could do to improve. So you're getting really specific and giving people an opportunity and signaling through your language, what's something I could do? What's something we could do around this one particular domain to improve? Right. It's the same thing I say, Jacqueline, about asking for feedback. You know, most people will go to their manager and say, what can I do to improve? That gives you no context as a manager on where to start. What have you thought about? I haven't even thought about it. I don't even know if you know that this is an issue. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking as the manager, oh, you're fine. Never mind. Because I can't answer that question effectively. That's right. Whereas if you zero in to ask a very specific question, like you listened to my talk last week, how could I grab the audience's attention faster? Now people can give you an opinion on that one and you get some specific. It's the same thing you're having asking here. Specific questions, behavioral questions focused on what I can do differently or we can do differently. Right. That is going to get a good answer. Okay. So all of these are ways of making sure that the change leader really understands where the audience is coming from. Okay. Now, so let's say I have a clue what my audience is thinking, whether it's one or thousands. How do I incorporate that? What do I do with that information to make my communication more effective? Start first with, with values. What, what does your audience value? And even better, if you can find values that align with yours around this particular change, because then you, you can start to build a, a common language. Okay. If you don't understand what your audience values, you can't speak to their reasons for buying into the change. And a, a very basic way to start with that, it, if you think about what sparks people to change, some people are reward-focused, benefits-focused. Other people are focused on avoiding risk Yep. How I minimize risk in, in my life. So if you, if you take two people who decide to run a marathon. And this was actually a conversation I had with, with two men at a, at a conference a few years ago, and they had both successfully completed a marathon. And one guy said, yeah, I started to do this because my doctor said, if I don't clean up my act, I'm going to be probably dead in five years. And so I knew I had to do something. So I decided I was going to set the goal of running a marathon. And so that I would avoid that risk. Whereas the other guy said, that's interesting. I decided to run a marathon because I wanted to raise money for charity. And I was thinking about how fun it would be. And I would get a group of my friends together to do this. So two completely different orientations, two completely different value sets, but legitimate reasons for sparking the change. And so if a leader can understand that then that's the place to start to, boom, spark that desire for, for change. All right. 
Um, two questions on this. One, presumably in a larger organization, there are many different values as you just gave two values. So I got to be able to tackle multiple values. But before I go there, I want to know, like, what kind of values? I get it in the marathon, but, you know, what are you seeing or sort of the kind of driving values that spark people to want to be able to change? Yeah. The the change that I was talking about earlier with the, the leader who said, oh, all my stakeholders, they're going to love this. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things he didn't recognize in that organization is that there there was a, a there were a lot of people who were living in golden handcuffs mm-hmm. and they weren't doing much they were getting paid very well and for some of them they had for years just kind of coasted in their in their jobs and suddenly the organization was asking them to step up now if you take the different values in those stakeholders there some people are just very commerce oriented. They're very money oriented. Mm-hmm. And so for for them, it's, hey, you're not going to have those golden handcuffs any longer because here are the expectations. And if you don't step up to the expectations, here's the risk that, right. that's going to occur to you. Whereas other people were motivated more by um, those intrinsic motivators. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, new new projects, uh, new opportunities to step up and lead, uh, opportunities to innovate, put ideas out there. And so understanding, again, those different value sets and, and speaking to, to that. Um, some people are motivated more by work-life balance. Mm-hmm. So, so then it's messaging around, here's how this will give you more of that. And by the way, I, I would also say for the people who are more commerce oriented, loved the, the golden handcuffs, um, I, I usually find that that's more of a surface value, that there's something underneath that. Often it's security. They want that security for their, their family for their future, or sometimes it's leisure. They, they want that, that income to spend money on fabulous vacations or, um, whatever their, their leisure passions are. So then understanding what's beneath the commerce value that then I can speak to as a leader. Okay. Any tactics for kind of figuring out where people land in all of these different values? Yeah. Well, I mentioned, of course, talking to people, building that trust, building those relationships. I love what you said at the very beginning of of the program, that this is about one conversation at a time. Of course, if you're a leader of tens of thousands, that's a little more difficult to do. But that's where your change champions can come into play. So if you know and that there is a group and you need to find that that group of people who are excited by the change who are 100% bought in and those are the people who can be your uh, joyful warriors if you will in, in the organization and get out there and and learn and understand what people's values are right okay but uh- If I've got change champions, I've got to get the change champions inspired to do just as much listening and a lot less proselytizing. 
How have you seen that work? Because, you know, change champions are so gun ho that often they miss the listening because they go out and sort of defend the idea. What's your advice there to make sure that they are listening? We've always run listening workshops with, with the change champions. So once leaders identify, hey, these are the people that are on board with the change then giving them the the skills and and the the knowledge that they need to get out there in into the organization um i think that's another aspect of change is making sure that people do have the skills to act on the change to adopt the change and so uh giving change champions those skills through training and and workshops helping them understand the rationale so we chased all of this because you said that one of the biggest mistakes that people make in how they deliver their message around change or transformation is about not starting with the audience front and center. So we talked about how do you go about listening, that you do need to listen, that you need to make yourself available and approachable. And of course, you need to walk the talk and be transparent and all those pieces. But you also said start with the values. What is the audience value and many different things that people might value, whether it's avoiding a risk or seeking an opportunity, an extrinsic or an intrinsic. There's a whole range of things that might happen there. All right. So that's all around putting my audience front and center. Yeah. Are there other things people are missing when they don't think enough about how to deliver the message? Oh, uh, a host of things. Where, where do you want me to start? <laughs> pick your pick your next two favorites. We'll go there. It's funny, Wanda, that earlier I said how you say what you say matters. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I see leaders overlook tiny aspects. For example, body language. Yep. They, they won't understand the importance of body language in those either one-on-one or one-to-many conversations. An example of that is if you are a leader and you're in a conference room, so it's a smaller audience, maybe you've got 20 people in there and you're talking about how exciting the change is and, and the new world, what it will be like. And I've seen this happen so many times where leaders will talk almost over people's shoulders or they'll direct their eye contact kind of at the center of the conference room table. They're not even aware they're doing it, but they're they're not landing their eye contact on other people. Now, by that, I don't mean landing their eye contact on other people just to land their eye contact because that can come across almost as, as aggressive. But using eye contact to read the audience, to notice how they're responding to what what you're saying, what's their body language doing. Mm-hmm. Um, communication, I liken it to a game of catch. Okay. And we're we're throwing a ball back and forth. I'm I'm throwing a ball to you right now and you just nodded your head and a moment earlier you said okay and kind of smiled. So I know that you're with me, you're listening to me, you're thinking, oh, this is kind of interesting, or at least I can assume that. Now, I might be confused by your body language, and I might want to explore that and check my assumption, but I'm not making eye contact with you because somebody told me to make eye contact with you. 
I'm doing it to include you in my game of catch. And I'm noticing the, the balls that you're tossing back at me. Yeah. All right. I love that analogy. Um, I've often heard people talk about it as a game of tennis. You know, you want to keep the ball bouncing back and forth as opposed to just go on hitting your own ball over and over again. But That's I right. like the name game of catch because that means that people are sending something back to me. Always. Even if it's just in a body language, and I need to be prepared to see it, to catch it, to notice it. That's right. It's communication is never a monologue. It's always dialogue, even if the other person doesn't say anything. They're still throwing that that ball back to you. And it's learning to recognize, hey, what's coming back at me? Okay, do I need to keep playing the game of catch, this is this is going well? Or do I need to check and make sure, hey, I'm not sure you're catching what I'm throwing. It seems like it's landing this way. Is that right? Is that not right? Do I need to course correct it in some way? Right. I like that one. All right. So listen, I would have to d dive into this one. Um, this whole notion of being able to read the audience, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you how many times I coach people where their manager has said, you've got to learn to read the room. Yeah, And I know that human beings are very difficult to read. We can tell that you're happy and that you're not so happy. We don't get a whole lot of other shades of gray in my experience in between. But you're talking about paying attention to very specific signals. So talk to us about what kind of signals to be paying attention to. What are the big ones that we want to be noticing in this game of catch? Yeah. Well, first, before I answer that, can I talk a little bit about how to get better at reading the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're connected. And if if you are, are someone who, what in the coaching profession, we would call low context, meaning you don't typically look at the pulse in the room, body language, and make meaning of, of that. You're more about the, the words, mm -hmm. um, which is okay. We need both types of thinking right. styles in, in the world. But if you want to get better at reading the room, simple ways to do that, sit in a Starbucks, have a coffee, just spend 20 minutes and watch people and see if you, you don't have to be right, just see if you can come up with some assumptions based on what you're seeing non-verbally. Interesting, reading literary novels also helps you do that because that builds the empathy muscle. So here's the thing with that too. You don't have to be right. Right. What's most important is if you have an assumption, you create an assumption based on what you're seeing that tells you in, in some way, hey, something's not quite right here. I'm not feeling okay with this. Then check your assumption. Okay. And that creates that listening. That opens that door to that trust uh, then someone can then either say, oh, wait, that's not what I intended. Let me clarify. Or because maybe they they need to adjust their, their assumptions themselves. Um, or they need, they can say, yeah, th that was right. So some simple ways to, to build that reading the room. Yeah. All right. Oh. So Starbucks or the airport or your commute or the train station, or walking to and from work, 
walking in the building. I mean, there's tons of opportunities if you just stop and pay attention to the people and notice your assumptions about them, I think is- Or with your partner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you can just check your assumptions with your partner. Yeah. Another, or your kids, or even your dog, because dogs are pretty clear in how they communicate. Um, people, a lot of people don't believe that, but but being a dog owner and a dog trainer, I, I know that's true. So check your assumptions around that. Seems right. like you want to go outside. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Let me open the door. You want attention or whatever it is. <laughs> right. All right. So we started this as how do we get better at reading in the room? And you were giving advice about um, the different ways of learning to tune into the broader context that's yeah. around you. So that's part of what I need to do is to not get so focused on the words that I'm saying, but I'm starting to notice the reactions around the room. Okay. Yes. And you had asked me about what types of things do I need to yep. pay attention with. And so earlier I had said, hey, we're playing a game of catch and you nodded your head, you smiled, you uh, were making direct eye contact with me. But if you were to have sighed or just sat there <laughs> or, or didn't make eye contact, broke eye contact with me or leaned away from me or crossed your arms. Now, you might lean away and cross your arms because you're cold. I, I don't know what the assumption is. I can check that assumption, though. Okay. Okay. I think you can... Uh, I don't know if this is an ac exactly accurate because people are so different, but you can certainly tell more easily when people are with you because there's a lot of nodding. Yes. But I all find with some audiences, particularly ones who are more introverted in nature, they tend to keep all of their expressions behind some brick wall that I cannot read. And it's easy for me to fill that gap with an assumption about they're unhappy, they don't like this, and so on. So this yeah. checking the assumptions is a really important part of the process because they will surprise you on a regular basis on this one. That's right. And going back to the specific questions... So you can ask something like, how is what I'm saying landing with you? What are your thoughts on what I'm saying? How do you feel about what I'm saying? But that's a, that's a great entry point, great way to check. But you can also get more specific with that. You know, I'm getting the sense that what I'm saying is making you uncomfortable. Is, is that right? And I, to your point, I've had audiences sometimes where I think, wow, this is not resonating with them at all because they're all introverts and and they they don't wear their emotions on their their sleeve. Um, and then they come back to me and say, no, 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 we're with you. This is this is really great. Um, or building safe ways for introverts, building some safer ways into checking their pulse, like asking people to write on a post-it note. I'm just going to hand out post-it notes and give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down or write one word to describe how what I'm saying is making you feel or write one thought that you have around what I'm saying. And that's often a, a, another entry point for introverts to share what they're thinking in a meeting. I just learned a trick today. Thank you, Chris Williams, for this one. Shout out to him and his team is that you can ask a question. I want to know what you're thinking, but you're not going to get great answers. But if you go around one by one and say, what's your takeaway? You're forcing people to think a little bit deeper 
and then they all reinforce each other in some interesting ways. Now, you can't do that with an audience of 100, but you certainly can't do that with an audience of 10 or 20. So it's a very interesting. You can do it with an audience of 100. We're using technology. So because people are always on their phones. And and by the way, here's another assumption. People are always on their phones. So in this day and age, be careful of assuming that just because people are on their phones, they're not engaged. They may very well be engaged. They might be taking notes. They might be tweeting about it. They but you can use technology if you're if you're speaking one to many. Use Slido to to do a poll. Um, Even if if you don't want to ask an open-ended question, you can give a multiple choice response to get a pulse on people. Right. I have um, on occasion just randomly popped up five or 10 people out of an audience of 100 and said, okay, so what's your takeaway from this? Yes. Reaction and just get that a few of them in the room because that gets everybody in the room thinking, oh, do I have that same reaction? Do I have a different reaction? It gives you some immediate feedback. All right. So we've talked about the power of not assuming you know where your audience is coming from, figuring out where they're really coming from, which especially starts with their values and their concerns, what they're thinking, how they see this change that you're driving, their reasons for wanting to make the change value-centered. We've talked about paying attention to the audience's reaction and checking your assumptions about that reaction so that I know, are people really with me? Are they not with me? Um, Have I gotten the right spot? We're talked about asking questions, so I get that feedback, but the need to ask very specific questions. All right, so I'm going to pivot because there's many more that we can do. I want to pivot. I want to ask a very general question, which is, What in your experience really creates that spark that makes, moves people to want to change? There's no make people want to change, but that inspires them to want to change. Yes. And we've kind of talked about that a little bit in in terms of what are their values? Are they reward focused or risk avoidant focused? Um, I think often there's a there is that initial spark for many people in an organization when a leader lays out their their vision. It's it's then over time that that spark drops. Yeah. Even for the people who are excited about the change. And some of the reasons for that are lack of certainty. So our brains crave certainty. If you think about from an evolutionary standpoint, when we don't have all the facts in a situation, that's pretty scary because we can't make decisions that are are best for us. Mm -hmm. And so I I see organizations um, trickle the facts out around a change or or withhold facts or not share with with their employees. We don't know right now. We don't have all the answers. We don't know. As soon as we know, we're going to let you know. And then acting on that, that's that alignment piece, really walking the talk. And so when people don't have the facts that they need to um, make decisions around the change, to take care of themselves within the change, they uh, do what I call MSU, which is make stuff up. Or you can insert another word in there in, in the middle. Yes. All right. And we don't want them MSUing. 
Um, but that's but that's normal. That's natural. Yeah. That our brains, because we're craving that certainty and craving those facts, we just start to make up facts so that then we can make some decisions around that. So uh, you know, I think that's a big piece to sustaining change. Is if, if employees trust that you're going to you're you're not withholding information because you don't you're withholding information and you're trying to do something devious. You may not know, but you then will get that, that, that information as soon as you have it. Um, but you're giving them as much information as you possibly can in the moment and then telling them why you can't when you, you can't do that. Um, that can really help sustain change. Um, another thing that can help is when people understand the why behind decisions. <clears throat> so... If as as human beings and all primates, we are highly activated by a sense of fairness. Mm-hmm. And I, there, there's that wonderful study. Your listeners can find it on YouTube around fairness with with monkeys, and they're they're giving monkeys grapes to perform an, an act, and both the two monkeys in a cage, and they both are getting grapes, and suddenly the researcher switches the monkey on the right, switches her grapes to cucumbers. And after just two times of doing this, she goes berserk. Where are my grapes? Give give me my grapes. So that's fundamentally how we respond when we have a sense of unfairness around a decision. And even if we don't buy into the decision, often if we understand the reasons behind it, yeah, that will then at least help us get on board and say, okay, I don't agree with this. I don't like it, but now I understand the reasons behind it. I see lots of times people wanting to know in the organization, um, did you consider this or this or this or this? And frequently yeah. the decision makers in this change process will have considered it. But they don't talk about that discovery process that they went through themselves. So, you know, sitting there as an employee thinking, well, it seems to me that there's a more obvious solution. Why aren't we doing that? So I think part of this sense of why we're making the decision is why we rejected some immediately obvious ideas. I don't know. What do you see in this space? I love that you raised that because by the time leaders are communicating a change to the organization, they've already gone through that discovery process and they've gone through their own change curve. Whether that's them sitting with their leadership team or with the executive team, they have gone through the the slog of figuring out, well, hang on a minute, do we need to change? If so, why? And what are the risks? And all those things that we've been talking about. And so by the, the time they get to communicating that to the organization, they forget that everybody is starting at square one with, with that. And so, yeah, I love that you you raised that because that's important to share. Um, here's how we got to where we are today. Right. All right. So to spark change, values, understanding what people value, whether they're risk avoidant or reward focused, they're looking for the gain or for the loss. Focus on that. The vision initially, but then I have to sustain that by making sure that I uh, that people are trusting that I'm giving the information as I have it when it's coming out and so on, or that I'm willing to say, I don't know, we're working on it. I have to give people the reasons why behind the decision. 
and some of the process I went through for choosing this decision, which might have been why I've rejected some other things. Okay. What about things like autonomy? Yeah. <clears throat> well, when I mentioned we were talking about certainty and that if I don't have all the all the facts, I can't make the decisions that are right for me, which one of those decisions may be, well, I don't like this. I'm leaving the organization. That that That's a fair choice. But um, autonomy is another trigger for, for people to resist change or to spark that desire or to keep sustain the desire through the change. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It okay. can be giving people autonomy and, and the, that agency to make decisions for themselves. It, it can be something small, like you decide what time and when your team is going to meet. As long as it's done by this time, you decide that. Or um, you decide where, uh, how, how many days a week and which days, a, no, well, probably not how many days a week, because a lot of organizations now are saying, you got to be in here three days a week. But mm -hmm. you can decide most of the time which three yeah. days of the week you're going to be in here. So it can be small decisions that give people that sense of agency. But when we take away that agency and we say, no, you are doing this, this is exactly how you will do it, when you will do it, then that crumbles desire. Well, you look at um, just staying on this hybrid working environment and the companies that have said, no, you can only need to be in the office two days a week or everybody can choose for themselves how many days they want to be. And then they've reversed course and said, no, you must be in. Even if it's a very normal, reasonable request that most people were happy to do at any rate, the fact that they took away that autonomy is backfiring. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I was talking with a, a client who was telling me about her former organization and she it just sounded horrible. She said that they had decided to reduce their workforce by 20%. So transitioned quite a lot of people out of the organization. But with one department, one function, they let them go. And then literally a week later, they said, no, wait a second. We realize that we can't let you go. We're not ready yet. So we're going to bring you back uh, for six months as consultants. Okay. <laughs> and so then they brought them back. And then after the six months, they said, well, we need to extend this uh, another year. Oh, good. Yeah. And so um, you just think about all the all the triggers around change that 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 one situation has created took away their autonomy, um, zero certainty, zero fairness. They weren't even told why this why why this ping ponging was happening with these decisions. And it's it's an extreme example. And yet I see stuff like this all the time in organizations. And the the company would have really helped itself just by saying, okay, we made a mistake, mea culpa, <laughs> and we need to have you come back. Here's why we need to have you come back. And here are the contributions that we need, that we value from, from you. And we want to hear from you uh, some, some ways that we can better make this transition. 
So we're back to listening. So if I'm walking away from this one, I'm hearing three or four messages that are consistent through everything you're saying. One is a heavy dose of listening where your audience really is, not where you hope they are. And that is listening both to the words, to their thinking, to their ideas, to their values, but it's also listening to the body language. So are they in agreement or are they not so clearly in agreement? So that's that listening is one piece. The second piece is around the uncertainty that if we don't address the uncertainty head on, that there's pieces we do know, pieces we don't know, we thought we knew, we made a mistake, that uncertainty gets people unglued. So you lose momentum, even if people thought it was a great idea and the lack of uncertainty. And then the third one is the sense of fairness. Yeah. That if it feels unfair, then you're going to, that those are your, I've heard from you. Those are the three. Did I get that straight from you? Yeah. There's one more, okay. which is this sense of belonging okay. in out group. Am I part of the in group? Am I part of the out group? And again, goes back to an evolutionary standpoint. Um, that's how we survive. We are collaborative tribal beings. And so, um, Tapping into relatedness. If you think about the example I gave with the people who were transitioned out, then they were brought back and then they were extended. Um, the the company, at least from what my understanding, the, as the story was told to me, the company didn't acknowledge the hit, the emotional hit that that gave those those employees. Didn't even acknowledge that humanity side of it. Um, and so that that just moves people to digging in their heels, resisting, yeah. sabotaging. At the at some ways that you can bring that sense of in-group and relatedness is um, give people spaces where they can talk about their very real and very human experience of going through the change. Um, where they can, it is a safe place to talk about their anger or the, the depression that they're feeling. Because, you know, if you think about the universal response to change, that change curve, no matter if the change is positive or negative, we all go through that anger and that bargaining and denial and depression. We might go through it quite quickly. We might not go through it as intensely as someone else, but we go through it. So giving people a safe space to be able to share their emotions around that change and to understand that they're not alone. Now that has to be facilitated for sure, because what you don't want is people living in those emotions for an extended period of time. But when people feel that their experiences are acknowledged and respected and that they're allowed to have that, that human experience um, again, that creates the sustained spark and desire for change. Right. Okay. So you did that in terms of talking about our emotions, you know, being able to express our hopes and dreams, doubts, concerns, fears, emotions, positives, and some negatives, and recognize that I'm not alone in that. And I'm valued as a human being. As a human being, I get this is acceptable. It's okay for me to talk about it, not wallow in it, but okay to talk about it. How does that, so that's sort of the emotion side, but how do we foster that sense of belonging? Because especially in change, I want to be in the know. I want to know that my leader is looking out for me. I want to feel that I'm part of the group. 
I mean, I want to feel that I can have some influence over how decisions are made. That's what happens when I'm part of that in-group. How do we foster a stronger sense of belonging? Yeah, well, besides giving people an opportunity to have those those safe spaces mm-hmm. to share the, those emotions, um, it's it's really tapping into as well a sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, within an organization, you've got your marketing creatives, you've got your engineers. Um, You've got HR. Mm-hmm. So allowing people to, um, within those I- identities or, or, or functions, um, being able to contribute to the, the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. We as engineers, here's our take on the change. Here are some ideas. We as marketing creatives, here are some of our uh, ideas. So running a, a hackathon, for example, is, is a great way of, and you can even do it in teams based on identity, shared identities. Um, we as women in tech, um, we as BIPOC in tech. So you give people that that opportunity to contribute to the change, contribute to conversations around the change through the lens of, of their identity also creates that that sense of belonging. It's a really interesting idea because it's an additional way of getting groups together to share a common language, a common experience, a common set of concerns. They have a natural bonding from that and to get that lens represented so we make sure we don't completely miss it. I can see why that would be a fascinating way to think about how we solve problems. Yeah, you know, earlier we were talking about um, ways to do a pulse check if you've got a large audience, and um, I have often in a in a large audience asked them to to quickly get into breakout groups based on functions, based on identities. I won't necessarily say identities, but sometimes I'll say, okay, let's get all the women in tech over here. Let's all get all the um, the marketing people over here. And give them uh, five minutes to do a a brain dump around um, what are my takeaways? What do I think about the change? What are some ideas that we have? Captured on a a flip chart, designate a speaker, and then feedback to to the broader group. So you can do it very quickly, but it's a way then to create that sense of belonging and realize, oh, I'm not alone in this. And hey, I had that idea and you had a similar idea. So it's not such a crazy idea. Right. Right. I can see that one. And I can see how strongly that works for both the sharing the emotions so that we're likely to have some similar emotions, no guarantees on that one. And there's a degree of autonomy in that one in that people still have a voice. So they feel like it's working. Okay. Four minutes. Terribly unfair. What advice do you have for doing all of this when it's virtual? Yes. So... The, one of the the positives of, of virtual is that um, when you're creating that sense of belonging, um, it's often less threatening for introverts. Mm-hmm. So that, that's number one. But making sure that your extroverts don't dominate the conversation. So <clears throat> making sure that you bring in both modalities of communication. You allow people to come off mute, speak, share, because your extroverts will love that. 
but then you also use a digital whiteboard or you use anonymous chat or you use anonymous polls to give introverts also an opportunity to share their ideas. Um, really important. So, something I've noticed in the past few months as we've moved out of the pandemic that people are not turning on their cameras in yes. meetings. I've seen so many teams do this lately. Of course, in the pandemic, w- when it first started, we were all turning on our cameras. Um, now people have Zoom fatigue, and so they're not turning on their cameras. Get the cameras on. Tell people before the meeting, come camera ready, because we're going to have our cameras on. It's actually super fatiguing to the brain to have everybody speak to black screens with with someone's name in it. So get those cameras on. Okay. Boy, I would love some tips for on how to make that happen because you can say that and I'm, we're not having great success at getting people to actually make this work. And I, you'll get 101 excuses. My camera is not working. It's like, I, you know, that, is, that doesn't cut it. You know, get, get it fixed. Have another problem solved. But it is interesting how much people are resistant for the camera. And I think largely because they don't like seeing themselves on screen. Right. But they can turn that off. And and so you can tell people, talk them through how to how to turn it off. And I think it's important to share with people why it's important to have the camera on. Um, because we're trying to recreate that sense of speaking in, in person. And but we can't do that right now. We have to be virtual. So, um, and it's also very fatiguing on not only your brain, but your colleagues' brains when when we can't see one another. Our brains are searching for those visual cues that they get when, when we're communicating in person. Okay, great. Jacqueline, tons and tons and tons in this one. So let me just see if I can try to recap in less than a minute. Terribly unfair. Good luck. This notion about we as a leader, we spend tons of time rationalizing what kind of change we want to make, how, why, what the nature of the change is, what's the reason for the change, and a lot of effort in that. But not nearly enough effort in thinking about how we're communicating that back out to the audience. So to be effective in a persuading other people to go through a change. One, I really need to understand where they're coming from. Their dreams and doubts. I need to understand their values. I need to understand their fears, what they see as obstacles. And to do that, I need to listen. I need to make myself available and find a means for listening. Okay. Number two, I need to really watch the moments of uncertainty because if I'm not tackling those well, people will start resisting the change and pulling back from the change. So being transparent of we don't know or being forthcoming in information or saying this is one we're going to sort out over time or whatever it is, less on the uncertainty. Three, fairness. We've never talked about fairness as much as I think we're going to talk about it in 2024. So I'm echoing how important people need to see that it is fair. Don't have to agree. They have to see it's fair. And that means transparent. Four, tap into the sense of belonging because that will give a way of listening and that will give people a feeling that they're not alone. And then number five is really focusing on giving people a chance to express the emotions they're feeling around the change, not to wallow in it, not to get stuck in it, but to acknowledge that, yes, this is tough, or yes, this is exciting, or yes, it's a mix of things for various ranges of people. Mm -hmm. And never more important than doing it virtually, and you can't do that without being able to see people's eyes. 
Bravo, Wanda. What Talk about good listening. Wow. All right. Thanks, Jacqueline. What a great conversation. So my guest today is Jacqueline Farrington. The book we were talking about, The Non-Obvious Guide to Better Presentations, How to Present Like a Pro, virtually or in person. Jacqueline, thanks for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Wanda. It really has been. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. And definitely send us a comment, wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.